Hello and welcome to Shakespeare and Pals. Episode 4, Venus and Adonis. We are going through Shakespeare's first narrative play today. But first let's introduce ourselves. I'm Michael. Yeah, I'm Greg. And I'm Sophie. Finally back, Sophie. Finally back after last time you were too shit-faced to come in. Yes, well, no, correction, too hungover to come in. Although um, I was going to introduce myself as um, a horrible and, what's the word, blasphemous, blasphemous and horrible person, Sophie, because that was a great line from, yeah, Duchess of uh, Malfi. That was great. Yes, these keen insights we'd hope you'd have on the day. Moving, not bitter. <laughs> not, I am not at all bitter about this at all. <laughs> Let us reveal our relationship with this narrative poem, Venus and Adonis. Greg, what is your relationship? I'd read it once before and was nonplussed, and then I read it again now and liked it a little better. That's about it. Yeah. Sophie? Um, so for, for, I'm not a poetry person. Uh, I am too blunt an instrument for poetry. So, uh, never really have, I don't, it's like, I will never have a relationship with a poem unless it was forced upon me by school or university. Yeah. No relationship really with this poem, except I had always wondered what was Adonis's story again? Cause you know, I genuinely was like, what is Adonis's story again? Because you have Narcissus, you have um, uh, Ryan, you have all these men who have been somehow ruined by uh, goddesses. But I was just like, wait, 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 wait. What happened to Adonis again? I don't fucking know. So there you have some idea. Yeah, I, ha- I, I just knew that he was handsome, and that was it. That is pretty much all he is. Is he's a handsome guy who's half decent at hunting. He is a handsome boy. There is very little else about him as far as I could find. Mm. He is the son of an incestuous relationship, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that still have doesn't... something to do with self-love, which he shows in this um, poem. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. I have, I have non nonplussed feelings about this person, about this Adonis. So yeah, um, that's basically my my feelings about Adonis and the relationship with this poem. Just generally, oh, okay, you exist. On my end. My relationship with this poem is about the same. I tried reading it once before. I, a few years ago, I bought the Oxford's The Complete Sonnets and Poems of William Shakespeare. And I read the first few pages of it back then and stopped. Uh, <laughs> I had read the original, the one in Ovid, the Ovid's Metamorphoses version of the story. Has anyone else read the version in Ovid? I read that. This morning, just to check it out, yeah. 
I whole lot short, I think. God. Yes, it is eight pages. <laughs> it is eight pages long, and five of those pages are a story within a story. Yeah. So oh, this poem, cool. entire poem, one hundred pages made out of three. Ooh. It's sort of like that Naoku uh, Urasawa uh, version of that Astro Boy storyline. Just a short, a hundred-page comic turned into a nine-volume exploration of the Iraq War via um, humanoid robots. And they, thank you for that amazing reference to make sure Venus and Adonis is understood by everyone else. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I go for a wide audience. Mm. But, you know, I haven't touched on the Ovid mostly because when I took classics at university, we must have skipped it. I've only read bits and pieces of Metamorphosis as I've been looking at particular stories. I just go, I I wonder if Ovid included a version of this story. (laughs) Usually speaking, he is the only version of these stories that we have. For a lot of them, yeah. But... Moving on to the biographical background of this story. This was released in 1593. This is the first published poem with Shakespeare's name on it, and frankly, the first published thing with Shakespeare's name on it. So this is, for better or for worse, this was for quite a long time the uh, thing that Shakespeare was known for. It was maybe printed to get some money during the plague, because all the theatre houses were closed, but a writer still needs to make a living. Oh, was... don't we all know about that? <laughs> you say that, Sophie, as though you've made any money. Yes. Uh-huh. No. Savagery. Well, at least uh, unlike the 1600s, uh, there was a government that shelled out money. So that worked out for me personally. Yes. Thankfully. Now, this poem, as one can tell, sort of by the subject matter and the language, was printed with an eye for an educated, literary, sophisticated audience with disposable income. It's like a criterion collection sort of thing. I'll, I'll talk about expo- uh, disposable income. There is a um, story that suggests that the person this is dedicated to Southampton, gave Shakespeare a thousand pounds. That is a thousand pounds in 1600. Yes, that would be quite excessive. One wonders, um, well, then afterwards, Shakespeare failed to get his patronage. So that goodwill ran out quite quickly. Oof. This poem is something to tickle the classical learning and the leaders of an educated audience, something a bit edgy and risque. That'd be about half a million dollars by our time, too, just to put it Oof. into perspective. One wonders why I didn't just retire right then. Well, uh, uh, I'd been looking quite a bit into Southampton because, you know, it's dedicated to him and there's this beautiful dedication, so... And he's the same yes, guy. Dedicated. He has one of those names. The Southampton has one of those names, which has far too many letters in it for what <laughs> it's pronounced as. It's it's spelt W R I O T H E S L E Y or something like that, but it's pronounced mm-hmm. Risley. <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, yeah, he he was quite wealthy and um. 
the Queen hated him, and there's multiple documents pointing out how much she hated him. And he earned a thousand pounds a year off his estate. Yeah. So half a million dollars a year. Was a, a, a very poor boy. <laughs> yes, and he also was a bit hesitant to get married, uh, which is some suggest that this poem is meant to be a bit of a dig at him, that this young, attractive guy refusing, refusing the advances of an attractive woman is supposed to be a dig at um, Risley's perhaps a bit anti-woman tastes. Though maybe he was just picky. He got married like five years later. Yeah. Five years later, after he couldn't get away from it. And I think it was his marriage which meant that he had to manage his money a bit more, a bit better, which meant that he could no longer shill out money for poets like Shakespeare. But this was right, done... I, I opened the Wikipedia page just then to remember if he'd gotten married or not. And it says here, a marriage. He'd ended up marrying Elizabeth Vernon in 1598. And Queen Elizabeth was so angered by the marriage that she had both newlyweds imprisoned for a period. Don't you just love Sheeham's corruption of powers um, governments? I don't like that you married her. Both of you go to prison for a bit. <laughs> At least she let them out, I assume. Well, she must have, because he then fought for her. Uh, oh, um, ooh, actually, you know, that's a good question. It doesn't say how long they were in prison for, but it was in 1598, so it'd be hilarious if he'd stayed in there till James took over. Oh, no, there you go. 1599, he'd, he'd fought in the Nine Years' War, so he was definitely out pretty quickly. And at this stage of Shakespeare's career, he was still responding to Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe of Dr. Faustus fame. There is reasonable argument that Richard III is a response to Marlowe's play Edward II, and Shylock is a response to Marlowe's titular Jew of Malta, Barabbas. And here, with this take on an Ovid myth, from the Metamorphoses, that he may be taking on Marlowe's version of Ovid, Hero and Leander, which I think we're going to be doing next month. But Hero and Leander, has anyone read Hero and Leander yet? Of course Look, not. Look, I, I, I came across it. I didn't, I didn't read it, but I've, I've got that Hero and Leander was actually after Venus and Adonis. Oh, well, maybe. With... Yes, with uh, these early things, it's sort of very difficult to figure out the timelines of. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But they, they, you know, they were very close in time. But yeah, it seemed very popular to. Yes, Let, let's take Ovid and make something more of him in English. Yes, there was in in my introduction to this version the way that Elizabethan writers did Ovid was to take the marginal and make it central. This is just a three-page story ballooned into a curlicue, detail-rich thing. I mean, that's what we still do today, don't we? Most likely. You, you, you take all of two dozen lines in Hamlet and you write an entire play about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Although the act of writing fanfiction has just exploded... It is everywhere. There is no escape. 
It has exploded only because now copyright prevents you from actually selling those things. Uh... Quite a lot of, in if you go back to this time period before copyright, you'll find people just publishing sequels to works they had no hand in. It was just an entirely acceptable thing to do, to release your own sequel to Don Quixote or Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. It, copyright gave birth to fan fiction. Yeah, makes sense. you got to go underground. <laughs> From what we've said and what Greg has said, frankly, so far, it will occur to you that we perhaps do not hold this poem in the highest esteem, but that was not a universal opinion, certainly at the time. This poem was not included in the first folio collection of Shakespeare's works, but that was not because it was unpopular. No, it was because it was so popular, going through so many printings that the publisher who owned the rights to Venus and Adonis refused to let the first folio had their hands on it. They could still make money from this thing. It went through 10 printings within Shakespeare's own lifetime. So whatever our opinion of this work is, for quite a while, this was, you know, hot stuff. I wonder if the fault of its now... Are you trying to say that Venus and Adonis is the uh, 16th century um, Fifty Shades of Grey? Now to the summary. Now, I have a feeling that either this episode is going to be very short or very long, because almost nothing happens in this poem. There are like five major plot points in this. So either we can be very short and stick to those major plot beats, or we can go through this detail by detail. One of those will take far longer than the other. Aha, but, yeah, let's, but let's, let's get into it. Detail by detail. There's a, there's a bit too much to do, I feel. Yes. Ah, I wish we had done the original Ovidian. But we begin with Adonis out hunting and Venus spying him. And she is immediately head over heels in love with this little boy toy which already sets up an inversion of the Petrarchan hunting love metaphor. So in this era of poetry, it's very common for the lover, the man, to be viewed as the hunter and the beloved, the woman, to be viewed as the uh, the animal to be hunted. And, you know, when the animal is pierced by the arrow, that means sex. And in this version, we have the male hunter being pounced on by a female. I I don't think it is outrageous to say that this entire poem is mainly just an inversion of courtship ritual. It is, what if a woman did all those things that we expect the man to do in a relationship? What if a woman pounced on the man? Do you think that I am underselling this? I think... Ah! I will just throw out there immediately that uh, it just this poem felt oddly incelly to me. I just what does an incel like it? If uh, do you mean incel in the sense that Venus may be an incel, or do you mean that um, Adonis as an Adonis is the incel, like uh, it, or at least the the whole woman 
a super hot woman chasing man and um, the man going, nah, like love is dumb. I'm too good for that shit. And, and therefore, in theory, I the like, thing about themselves was that they were angry that attractive women weren't throwing themselves on them. I mean, yeah, but so like to have the power to say no to the hot, hottest woman just throwing themselves at them would be, I would assume, like a super horny power trip for an incel. Be gone. Yeah, yeah, this, would, this would be like their wet dream is getting to yeah. say no to a goddess of love. Yeah, no, just <laughs> to have, yeah, like they don't have to be, the fact that, you know, a super hot woman that is throwing themselves at them and the fact that, you know, they can say, no, you're not good enough. I'm, I'm too good for this shit is just felt like, oh, oh no, child, please stop. I, I, I do think that you're right though, that this must be some sort of reversal of courtship trope because in, in the original poem, it just simply says he wins the love of Venus, which would I? I think most people would have assumed was he courted Venus rather than the other way around. Let me find in the original. In my version, at least, it sort of implies that she looked at him, she fancied him, and then it immediately cuts to them sort of canoodling. So it, the courtship is almost entirely absent in my version of it. Yeah, yeah. There's basically nothing we know about it, really. Yes. This this poem certainly says, oh, that's an absence. I'm going to fill it in. Ah, so in the original, uh, uh, under what? the spell of this fellow's beauty, the goddess no longer takes any interest now in Cytheria, nor does she return to her haunts on the islands of Paphon or to fish wealthy Sidnus or to orbiting Amethyst. She avoids heaven as well now, preferring Adonis and clings to him, his constant companion, ignoring her former mode of unstrenuous self-indulgence. Indulgence when she shunned natural light for the parlors of beauty. So here she sees him, she clings to him, they are constant companions, and then she becomes monogamous for a bit. That is the entirety of the first 50 pages of Shakespeare's version in the yeah. original. Are you uh, wishing, Sophie, that we had done Ovid's version? It was quite a long. Slog, if I had not been introduced to the audio version of this, I, I just could not finish this. So thank you, but, by the way. Let's be honest, audio version is probably the best way to experience this, like the plays are supposed to be plays. Like, yeah. the poetry of this is a lot harder to read than to hear someone tell it. Yeah, and um, also because it was done by professionals, um a woman was reading Venus's lines. A, a man with a youngish voice was reading um, Adonis's lines. So it was like a really enjoyable listen, but I would not read this in my spare time unless, you know, you were stuck in a plague and nothing else was out to read. Although I think... Or if internet pornography had yet to be invented. I was going to say, this is a pretty saucy poem. Yeah, this is actually... The, this is this erotica in some scenes. There were some parts that just made me go, Jesus, that's explicit. Um, yes, one of them was that backwards as she pushed him, as she would be thrust. Hmm, matron. But yeah. Um, oh, also, like, at first, I kind of understood Adonis' love 
reluctance to be with uh, Venus, mostly because of, I'm not sure how true this is, but I'm pretty sure, like, uh, in Greek uh, mythology, that if a woman rode a man in, like, sexual intercourse for, I think the British call it going for bishop, which is very strange, like, but yeah, if you want a bit, if you want a chance at you know giving birth to a bishop, you, a woman p- tops a man. I guess, I guess, I just don't know. But yeah, um, in terms of Greek mythology, um, it is not right for a woman to top a man in sex because you know a woman is inferior to man, but a goddess would be you know, superior to man, but, you know, it's still improper for her to top him. So if he does top her, a goddess, he is committing a taboo and will, like, immediately combust or something. I feel like there was a mythological no-no of don't fuck a female goddess because if you do that, you're dead. You're dead either way. Yes, I think in one of the Homeric hymns, there's one character, a one a, a mortal man who's being seduced by a goddess, and he says, "No, no, don't do this to me, because I know what happens to any man sex with a goddess." The idea is that in the ancient Greek world, penetrative sex, whoever does the penetrating, they are automatically dominant. So, if a mortal man penetrates a goddess, then he is asserting himself above the goddess, which is blasphemy, and so therefore something terrible is going to happen to him, as happens to Adonis. Well, no, uh, I th- in Ovid's version, this is quite clear. He tops the, he has sex with a goddess, and then he, get, he, he dies and becomes a flower. In this version, he just sort of, it's unrelated, really. <laughs> he would have died yeah. anyway. So, yeah, no, I thought basically that was why Adonis was going, hey, Venus, I, I like living too much, so, like, I... I I can't, I can't. I, I will abstain from your love, even if it pains me, because, you know, I would, I enjoy life. I like hunting. Isn't there um, actually, yeah, I was going to say, there, there's a, there's a um, verse in this where he's like, no, I prefer to hunt. Yeah. And that made more, <laughs> that would have made sense to me as, you know, a self-preservation. I do not wish to die. I do not wish to be cursed into becoming a tree or turn into like, an animal or a puddle will be hunted by my own dogs because that's just what happens to Greek men who fuck up. Um, so, like, but then he was just like this churlish, immature, obscenely childish man going, No, love is for cowards, love is for babies. I'm too young and old for love. I and I'm just like, oh, one, God. I think at one point, I think at that point of the story, the reason why he was saying that was that, look, it's not that I have anything against love, it's against you. <laughs> your, so your lust, your just lust, I, and also, and I think at that point he's more trying to change his tact. Like, up until this point, he's saying, like, I don't want to have sex with you. I don't want this, I don't want this. And then later on, he says, oh no, give me a few more years. Like, no, he's just trying to give us some hope. Uh, but go away now, give me some time for myself. Uh, I mean, we, we could just say that rather than, we could say that perhaps Adonis just does not want to have sex. He is not an incel, he is a vol cell. Yeah, so I was just like, I don't, I don't, uh... Ah, so yeah, I just, I, uh, I don't like this Adonis at all. 
He's a bit of a dick. He's also like a kid. Like, he talks about this as being his unripe years. Yeah, which... (laughs) So, I'm just going, wait, are you too old for this shit? Or are you too young for this shit? In which case, like, how are you allowed to hold a weapon? But that's just, you know, the modern leanings of thinking, I suppose. Um... But, you know, I was just like, okay. By the so, way, she gets what she wants and he has to live with it. Uh, or do die they, with it. I think, at what, do they have sex in this or do they merely kiss? Oh, no, they they clearly have sex. Yes, he finds her. Yeah. Uh, should we, uh, I'm just wondering, at the moment what we're doing is jumping all around the story. Should we go through it bit by bit or should we keep to this sort of back and forth? I mean, the story is short, isn't it? The story is she sees him. He doesn't want to be with her. She breaks up the hunting by making his horse fall in love. I'm not sure whether he she makes the horse fall in love or... It just happens, yeah. That um, moment. You wonder how Shakespeare wants us to take that horse bit. It It is... Described in excessive detail, but then the entire poem is on an excessive detail. So let's go to the um, the yeah, horse. Shakespeare likes his animals. Yeah, yes. I'm not gonna lie. I basically highlighted those two um, paragraphs that starts with "Look, when a painter would surpass the life in limbing out a well-proportioned steed, his art with nature's workmanship at strife, as if the deed." The living should exceed. Uh, actually, it's the dead, my mistake. So so did this horse excel a common one in shape, in courage, colour, pace and bone. And just describes a beautiful horse. And uh, I commented, for the furries, clearly. Although I do wonder what the deeper meaning of this is. Because, you know, at the end of this, after this horse and this she-horse have been getting the nasty on, Venus says, well, look, the horses do it. Why not us? You know, Yeah, you and me, song? baby, ain't nothing but mammals. Yes. Birds do it, yada yada do it, so why don't we do it? I forget what 1920s song that was, but there was a song like that. Yes, uh, let's fall in love. Yes, but in the Renaissance, the uh, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, horses had a very specific meaning to them. They had a very, that the thing about a horse was the opposite of a man, because a man has a brain, has reason but has a very weak body. Whereas a horse, it has a perfect body, very strong, very strapping, but it is dumb as pig shit. So the, <laughs> Rough. So the idea, this is the reason why at the end of Oliver's travels, why the ultra-rational horses are the joke there, is why there are talking horses, are the perfect creatures, because they combine the perfect body of a horse with the mind of a human the Winhams in um, Gulliver's Travels. But yet, so horses were just meant to be the opposite of man. Perfect bodies, no brains. They are the himbos of the animal world. This horse. So I, I wonder what Shakespeare's trying to say here. So Venus is saying, look, the animals are doing it, so why not us? We do it. Except the animals that are doing that are archetypally the most stupid animals possible. They are archetypally the opposite of man. So for Adonis to take this as a good argument, would be essentially making himself bestial. I wonder whose side Shakespeare is perhaps on in this poem. I'm not sure Shakespeare's on his side, to be honest. I think Shakespeare's just trying to sex up a myth. 
Yes. I, he also sexes it up by removing a very specific detail, which I remember from the Ovid version, which may or may not be in your version, Greg. In this, ver- you know, at the end of this, he goes hunting and a boar, you know, ah, yes. stabs him through. In the, the Ovid version, quite specifically, the boar stabs him through the dick. Yeah. Uh, it is that, yes, that is quite, uh, he is unmanned. Yes, very I, was, I was surprised blatant. to find that that was one of the changes. Yes, you wonder why Shakespeare didn't do that. <laughs> I think it's because Shakespeare wanted to um, focus on this um, tragedy of a lost love rather than punishment for fucking a goddess. Mm-mm, perhaps. Uh, is this... so? It, would we say this is a lost love? Or would... I'd say that perhaps one of the main things of interpreting this poem is how you view the uh, Adonis's reaction to Venus. Like at the end, so what happens is that Venus says, oh, please, please kiss me. Just give me one kiss. And then she seems to faint. She says, oh, she seems to be dead. Oh, she seems to be dead. Oh, she said she just wanted one kiss. Maybe if I kiss her, she'll wake up. So we can already see that this let's kiss the unconscious woman uh, existed before the uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation existed. So that joke is very old. So he kisses her, and then he kisses her again, and then she wakes up. Are we meant to view this as him finally succumbing to her? Or is this just him being a good person trying to revive a fainted woman? Is he doing this reluctantly? My note says, personally, pretty sure he doesn't want to be guilty of murdering a goddess. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, and, I took uh, it as he just wants the goddess to stay alive. But then <laughs> after the questionable um, events afterwards, he, okay. yeah, they engage in a relationship. It's, it's more than just... He's not stuck, he's beguiled. Also, I just wish to say, uh, for the paragraph, that's, that is, starts with, and at his look she flatly falleth down, for looks kill love, and love by looks reviveth. A smile recurs, the wounding of a frown, but blessed bankrupt, but by love so thriveth. The silly boy, believing she is dead, claps her pale cheek till clapping makes it red. And, I'm, and uh, my note says, which cheeks, though? Yes. <laughs> he... At this point, he does, this isn't really, these are definitely the actions of a guy just trying to make sure she's alive. This isn't that, oh, she's sleeping now, let me take my chance. No, he's saying he wrings her nose, he strikes her on the cheeks, he bends her fingers, holds her pulses hard, he chafes her lips. Uh, a thousand ways he seeks to mend the hurt that his unkindness marred. So he's he's really just sort of slapping her back and forth. No, wake up, wake up. Uh, yeah, this, a bit to kiss her. Yes. <laughs> And it's the way that he um, tries to wake her up is quite unromantic. He rings her nose. He strikes her on the cheeks. And it's like the way really, that's, that instead that's of like very similar to how patting, doctors do it. Yeah. It's like strikes. Just fucking, bitch, wake up, please. Like bends her you see it in the movies now still, the whole patting the unconscious person on the cheek. Yeah, the, but there's patting and there's striking, you know, like... <laughs> And also, he bends her fingers, I'm assuming backwards, which is quite a painful thing to do. Um, he changed Actually, similar life. to what doctors do today. Doctors do today is they pinch the finger, hoping to cause pain in the fingers. Ooh. 
it just out of a weird interest. That's that's how they um, prove unconsciousness or hope to bring someone out of unconsciousness. Uh, either the finger or the earlobe. He kisses her, and she, by her goodwill, will never rise, so he will kiss her still. The night of sorrow now is turned to day, her two windows faintly she upheaveth, like the fair sun when in his fresh array he cheers the morn, and all the earth relieveth. And as the bright sun glorifies the sky, so is her face illumined with her eye. So he kisses her, and then she wakes up finally. If she was playing at being dead, she was very good at hiding all her pain. Uh-huh. Do you think? Do we think that she actually fainted away, or that she was just trying to finagle a bit of affection out of Adonis? I think that she was being quite genuine because you know it's made quite clear that uh, Venus just throughout the the play, not play poem is being excruciatingly genuine and excruciatingly vulnerable to the point of going, girl, you're a goddess of love and lust. Have more self-respect. Um, I would, let's put it like this. I think perhaps we are being a bit too kind to Venus. Let's imagine the genders flipped in this story and it was Apollo going after a young girl. Will we have the same reactions to what's going on here? Apollo with his cock out saying, go on, girl, take me. And the woman saying, no, no, get away from me. I don't want this. I don't want this. And then Apollo fainting on the ground and saying, oh, no, only your kisses can revive me. Would we view that as being acceptable? I mean, I don't think we're viewing this as acceptable. We're just saying um, they're just as just as forceful. And that's what I meant. I, I, afterwards, it, it it's I still feel like this is a guy who is not really consented. this is definitely I mean I wonder what the tone of this is meant to be are we meant to view Adonis saying oh no no I'm meant to view this as comical in a sense is this sort of meant to be a burlesque version of the myth where it's sort of meant to be funny yeah is is it funny though it's 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 as funny as most romantic comedy sort of a whimsical tone rather than laugh out loud. Yeah, I, I think it would have been taken as a light romance. Um, and, and I think it's supposed to be that light romance with a tinge of tragedy at the end. It's not supposed to be anything deep. Um, but yeah, I, I think very much that he's kind of been trapped into this... Um, this scenario and and it's like even after all the kisses it's like yeah but i i still get to go hunting tomorrow right yes he he definitely can i go and hunt he definitely wants to get away from her as quickly as possible and immediately goes to hunting it's only been i suppose this is the first time i'll say that it's only been 40 minutes in this recording and it's already feeling like we're running out of things to say Because as we have said, as I have said, the thing about this poem is how it goes on and on. That's a negative way to put it. How it embellishes every single detail. Like, for instance, here here is Shakespeare. Well, here's the line from the poem. So once more the ruby-colored portal open, which to his speech did honey passage yield, 
like a red morn that ever yet betokened rack to seamen, tempest to the field, sorrow to the shepherds, woe unto the birds, gusts and foul flaws to herdmen and to herds. This ill presage advisedly she marketh, even as the wind is hushed before it raineth, or as the wolf doth grin before he barketh, or as the berry breaks before it staineth, or like the deadly bullet of a gun, his meaning struck her ere his words begun. Now what that two stanzas mean is that he opened his mouth and she sensed that he was going to say something against her. That is it. So this is definitely goes, I assume that um, in any writer's workshop or in any of those, you know, bargain basement, how to write books, they say, if you can say something in fewer words, say it in fewer words. Shakespeare's time period, people were very much of the opposite persuasion. If you can find an incredibly long paragraph, long metaphor for something, use that metaphor. This is a book made out of expanding every detail and the invention of details into. I don't think it was about trying to make it longer as much as um, this is a short story. I want to make it sound as beautiful as possible. The only way to add so much beauty is to make it longer. Yes. Like, how do you find something beautiful about he tried to wake her? Well, no, this isn't when he wakes her. This is when she's about to go, oh, this is when she falls down. Um, this is just before she's about to faint. But it's yeah. like, in terms of I'm trying to pass off a story that already exists as my own and show off my amazing ability with the English language, the only way to do it is to, to expand it and to... And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm I'm merely saying that certainly the tastes of today have changed to a great extent, where in order to like this, you do need to take a step back from what we have been raised to view as compelling writing. On the one hand, yeah, because it is quite tiresome. Um, But on the other, those two paragraphs were a really good way to basically, you know, express the devastation of Venus's rejection, even because, you know, she had conjured all the things that he could say to her that would make her, you know, basically briefly die because it would have been so savage, so cruel, um, and basically kind of letting the reader imagine what those horrific things that he could have said to her is um, more effect- is kind of effective writing. It's a little bit like that um, spaghetti incident with um, Calvin and Klein? Calvin and Calvin and Calvin Hobbes. And Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes, you philistine. (laughs) I got there in the end, but yeah, so, and I did actually um, comment slash note main got um, for those two paragraphs, because on the one hand, yeah, they're excessive. On the other, they're beautifully written. It is certainly one of those poems where I do imagine that if cut out any two or three stanzas and gave them as, you know, I don't know, excerpts or even just as poems, standalone poems on their own. More people would appreciate them. 
It is, I think, mainly the fact that this is one expanded detail, one, you know, lavish poetical description after another. That's what makes it wary. It's just too much in a row. I, th- I think it's also we're not used to poetry in general being this long. So for us, the continued repetition of the rhymes and the structure, it's wearying because we're not used to it. Most likely. I do, I do wonder if perhaps this was written in a prose form, if they, not even changing any of the words, just cutting out all the line division, whether people will be able to read it more like, I don't know, Moby Dick or something like that, or Ulysses, whether that would make it more palatable. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It, it, it brings up a... Uh, yeah, I I've, have trouble seeing how this would work in any other form than is this long poem. But I feel like it's our fault that we don't like it as much. (laughs) To be honest, I I, I feel like it's a problem with modern readers rather than with the text. Oh, most certainly. You, You would have to get used to reading and listening to a lot of long poetry and then this wouldn't be so tough. I think also um, for me, um, two points I'd like to make. So first of all, the fact that it was uh, given to an Earl and I had kind of hoped that maybe he, the Earl was getting married or something, but apparently not because it briefly reminded me the racy nature of the poem kind of reminded me of um, the birth of Venus, the painting. And how originally it was just given to a couple that had just gotten married and that image was just meant to be enjoyed by those two in their bedroom. Like, that's what it was meant to be. Um, So for me, I thought for a moment that this was meant to be like a poem that was dedicated to the Earl of Hampshire, Sam, Sand, whoever the fuck. I don't know. Southampton. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Southampton. That maybe um, it was meant to console him for a bad breakup. It's like, oh, yeah, no, she's chasing after you, but you're too good for her. Um, but no, it was given out to people no, it, all over the place. This, I'm doing this for you, so please give me money. Yeah. Everyone yeah. knows your poems, so. <laughs> But and, yeah, um, and my sorry. second point that I wanted to make was that how this could, because it's so long and because it has a little bit of everything, it has horses, it has dejection, it has um, a very racy part about, um, you know, fondling, she saith, since I have hemmed thee here within the circuit of this ivory pale, I'll be a park, and thou shalt be my dear. Feed where thou wilt, on mountain or in dale, graze on my lips, and if those hills be dry, stray lower where the pleasant fountains lie. Within this limit is relief enough, sweet bottom grass and high delightful plain. Round rising hillocks, breaks obscure and rough to shelter thee from tempest and from rain then be my dear since i am such a park 
no dog shall rouse thee, thou a thousand bark. And it's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, that is... Um, a very early injunction to Cunnilingus. Yes, that's a, that was a lot. clearly takes a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, inspiration from Song of Solomon. It's just a lot of, of body to take in. So there, a so lot of body. There is also a little bit of BDSM in here. Like, how like a jade he stood, tied to the tree, servilely masked with a leathern rein. But when he saw his love, his youth's fair fee, he held such petty bondage in disdain, throwing the base thong from his bending crest, Enfranchising his mouth, his back, his breast. And it's just like, yeah, so it's okay. Always, it's always fun finding these antecedents in things, and you wonder how much it was intentional there. How much did they find that enhanced the feeling of it? I think there was another poem or another play, I forget what it was called, it was like The Maid's Tragedy or Women Beware Women or something like that. But at the end of it, the evil king, his lover, says, let me tie you to this bed. And I think he agrees to be tied to the bed. But that is something that nowadays has undeniable connotations to it. Yeah. Uh, could, could, moving away from the sex, did anyone else, did either of you feel like the death scene was quite beautiful as well? Let's... Like talking about... um. With purple tears, his wound wept and was drenched. No flower nigh, no grass, herb, leaf, or weed, but stole his blood and seemed with him to bleed. That, that, that line just really worked for me, the whole idea of... It, it wasn't like blood sprayed everywhere. It was like, as he bled out, everyone else bled too. Everything else bled as well, and like it was a... And especially the the lead up to his death, because we don't immediately see him dead. What we have is Venus going out. She hears a scream and she says, oh, no, oh, God. And and she is she hears dogs barking. And already she is bemoaning death. She is hoping he's not dead. She hasn't seen him dead, but she's hoping he's not dead. But still, she's already half grieving. But then she goes on and she thinks, oh, no, he's alive. But oh, no, actually, I see his dead body now. In the Ovid version, I think it's just that she goes after him hunting and then she sees him getting killed by the boar. Whereas yeah. in this one, it adds in an, a bit of suspense to it. That... Yeah, she doesn't actually see the the murder or the, the yeah. killing or whatever. She only sees the results of it. Um, and, I, and I like that her um, eyesight, like, ra- rather than that she sees double, she sees triple, but that sh- she goes, like, her eyes go fuzzy from the shock and what is it uh that her sight dazzling makes the wound seem three certainly it is a it is this is very much from venus's point of view oh yeah i wonder you know any historians of narrative novelistic technique i wonder where they place this very very much the the centered point of view thing in a third person narration. This is very much from Venus's point of view. The whole, I would say the whole poem is very much from her point of view. There is some breaks into Adonis's psyche, mostly because, you know, she fainted, so she couldn't give a 
empirical view of the of the situation. But um, yeah, most of it is definitely from her perspective. Even if you know, occasionally he just takes over by being an absolute child <laughs> to her in the way he rejects her. I had a part. I had a um, note that said, "What a fucking child!" Oh, there it is. Um, which is just above the halfway point. It's like, I know not love, quoth he, nor will not know, nor will not know it unless it be a bore, and then I chase it. Tis much to borrow, and I will not owe it. My love to love is love, but to disgrace it, for I have heard it heard it is a life in death that laughs and weeps, and all but with a breath. Who wears a garment shapeless and unfinished? Who plucks the bud before one leaf put forth? If springing things be any jot diminished, they wither in their prime, prove nothing worth. Oh God, I really should not be reading poetry. I'm terrible. But yeah, you hurt my hand with ringing. Let us part. And this is like, oh, just the way that... The words chosen makes him seem so immature, which says a lot about Venus's choice of him as well. Like clearly, she's only interested in the in the looks. I think I think that's clear because even when he's dead, she's more concerned about his looks fading. Uh, and it's just like, come on, like Venus, you 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 deserve so much better. Why, why, why are you still hung up on this, his churlish? In the original Ovid version, the reason why she's in love with him is she's playing with her baby and Cupid pricks her with the love arrow, which just makes her fall in love with the first person she sees. It's not her fault in Ovid. Oh, and I had another note. I had two paragraphs that I highlighted with the comment, who hurt you? Um... Like, love comforteth like sunshine after rain, but lust's effect is tempest after sun. Love's gentle spring doth always fresh remain. Lust's winter comes ere summer half be done. Love's surfeits not lust like a glutton dies. Love is all truth, lust full of forged lies. It's like, clearly, didn't you always have a heartache that involved a lot of, a lot of lust and then just died away? Was he ghosted? Like, who hurt him? I, I think that's more about society at the time. You can't say. He is. He's just giving these rather cliched uh, distinctions between love and lust, which you can also find in a lot of Shakespeare's uh, po- other poems. He is. Yeah, true. Yeah, I saw it more as, uh, no, no, I swear, this isn't erotica. We're talking about love here. <laughs> and he's also saying that, look, I'm not... I'm not against love. Stop trying to pretend me getting, refusing to have sex with you is me giving up love. No, I just have nothing to lust, which clearly you are in the throes of. But, you know, the length and the um, the varied content of this very long poem kind of gives everyone something to be, to have a favorite moment about. Um, So you can, so, you know, if someone's recently had a breakup and it was very lustful, but there was no love, um, then they could love this two paragraphs and go, yeah, no, this is, Shakespeare's my boy, he gets me. 
Um, I wonder if we could we... better sell this to the modern age by repackaging it as a poem. <laughs> repackage it as a calendar of verses. <laughs> a poem every, day, every moment. <laughs> every day, just two stanzas of it, and then you think, oh, yes, lovely. Could, could we discuss the death? Just okay. A bit more. Because I, I really like that Shakespeare wants to make it very clear it's not the boar's fault. I, I, I um. So the the line is, um, ah, oh, and and nuzzling in his flank, the loving swine sheathed unaware the tusk in his soft groin. This whole idea that the boar was trying to kiss him. Not oh, they do. They do keep the the castration element of it. <laughs> they, they do have it like stuck in his groin, but it's it's more that um, yeah, he ran upon the ball with his sharp spear, who did not wet his teeth at him again, but by a kiss thought to persuade him there. So it's like the the ball wasn't trying to hurt him. He he just loved him as well. It's like Lenny from Of Mice and Men. So and, I didn't then, mean to hurt him. Yeah, uh, had, I, had I been toothed like him, the boar, I must confess with kissing him I should have killed him first. But he is dead and never did he bless my youth with his, the more I am accursed. So the whole idea of she doesn't hold this against the animal, and Shakespeare wants to make it very clear, the animal is safe. I wonder why... <laughs> No animals were hurt in the oh, yeah. this poem. Yeah, those two paragraphs, I, I definitely commented with, what a turn. <laughs> and But she does, she basically goes, I do also like, you know what, the, the, the hog that killed my darling Adonis is blameless, but humanity is, is going to be fucked because I am so angry about this, you know. Since thou art dead, lo, here I prophesy. Sorrow on love hereafter shall attend. It's just, just absolutely curses the rest of humanity. And it's like, oh, wow. That's, in, come on, in man. This, sense, this poem does really change. So Ovid's poems, they are a series of, it, it is a combination of two genres. One of the genres is just a mythology collection. The other genre is the ateleology collection. You know, all those stories of, oh, the reason why we have spiders is because a woman called Arachne was turned into a spider. The reason why we have this kind of tree is because this woman was turned into this tree when she tried to avoid being raped by Apollo. It's that kind of story. In the Ovid version, the Adonis story is the reason why we have this kind of flower is because Adonis, after he was gored by a bull, was you know, gored by a, a boar, was turned into this flower. In Shakespeare's version, the etiology of this, the the just so story of this, is that the reason why love's so shit nowadays is because of Adonis and Venus, because he was killed by a boar. So Shakespeare's really made this a lot more dark than it was before. I wonder if we're meant to take this seriously. Does love turn out like this? Or is she in the throes of grief? Uh, I would say she is in the throes of grief, and depending on like the stage of love, yeah, it can be like that. I guess it's been so long. I'll be sure to tell your husband that, Sophie. (laughs) 
Oh, and um, a little, a few paragraphs down, um, the one that goes, by this, the boy that by her sigh lay killed was melted like a vapor from her sight, and in his blood that on the ground lay spilled, a purple flower sprung up, checkered with white, resembling well his pale cheeks and the blood, which in round drops upon their whiteness stood. Um, I commented, what Doctor Who shit is this? It is certainly well, a generation devoutly to be wished. That's the but, weird yeah. that's weary of the world away she hides, yokes her silver doves by whose swift aid their mistress mounted through the empty skies, in her light chariot quickly is conveyed, holding their course to Paphos, where their queen means to immure herself and not be seen. So it ends on a depressing note that Venus seems to be enclosing herself in heaven forever after, perhaps. Whatever love that we felt, there was n- it's never as true as the one Venus felt for Adonis. Which, that that uh, is very Shakespearean, though, that if one person's dead, the other person has to die as well. She has to die to the world. I, I, I mean, doesn't that happen in almost all his plays, that if one of the lovers dies, the other one does as well? I wonder. I can't think of any example. Counter example is not coming to mind, but (laughs) I feel that maybe there would be. Hmm. I assume (laughs) that if one of the lovers does die, it would have to have happened before the play starts. That's the only time. Like King Lear, um... King Lear's wife is dead. I think. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure King Lear's wife is dead, but, you know, and once... And then he um... dies. Oh, yes. <laughs> and they all lived happily ever after. If you're mourning, your who... number's up. You're not going to last very long if you're mourning. Shakespeare is oddly a purist in that sense, isn't he? He's, off, he's, he's a little bit like a teenager in that sense. When, it's, like, when oh, it's true this love. This is my first and last love. I will love no other, and once... My lover dies, I die too. Yep. Till death to us part. Very cute, actually. Really, really important to Shakespeare. I, I think that was in... kind of important for the society in general because you know if you're if you're not allowed to divorce, you might as well you know just die. I mean, you could be married. I, I was going <laughs> to say, but. But, but wouldn't that be all the more important then for people to want to go, well, at, at least I'm free once she's dead, right? And Shakespeare's going, no, no, once she's dead, you have to die as well. Yeah, it's do or die, baby. It's ride no. or die. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I still can't think of a counterexample to if someone dies in Shakespeare, their partner dies as well. I can't think of... If you're out there listening and you can think of one, please email. And I know that would actually be a fun little thing to keep note of when we actually move on to the rest of Shakespeare's plays. It's like, okay, cool, someone's dead. Do they are they are they unattached? And if they are attached to someone, are they going to die too? Because you know, um, uh, a plague upon both thy houses. Gum says that Mercutio, Mercutio. Pretty sure Mercutio is unattached, but because of his death, like, um, his best friend dies, best friend's girlfriend dies, like, so even unattached, 
if you have a best friend, if you have like a brother in arms, they're gonna die too. So, oh no, no, because um, in two noble kids, what's his name in Hamlet gets to stay alive. Horatio. Horatio gets to stay alive. In two noble kinsmen, I think the so Amelia is being pursued by Palamon and Arsite, and I think it is that Arsite and Amelia get married, but Arsite falls off a horse and dies, and then Palamon marries her, and she keeps on living. Although I think that doesn't count because Amelia hates them both and is a lesbian, probably. <laughs> so it's not true love. Yes. Ah. But yeah, let's, as a fun little game, let's keep that in mind for like the future Shakespeare, Shakespearean plays. It'd be fun. I'm looking forward to that. That was Venus and Adonis. Now to end it, just some general <laughs> thoughts and. Well, let's go around and say one thing which we didn't like about this. Greg, what's one thing that you didn't like about this poem? I really just didn't like the horse thing. I would have preferred another excuse. I know it's a weird thing to hang up on, but I'm like, really, is that convincing enough? Like, the the horse followed by her fainting, I just... There could have been another way. Why couldn't she have just been so eloquent as to um, convince him instead of the horses got together so he had to stop and then she fainted? It it just doesn't work as a plot point for me. (laughs) Sophie. For me, it's... I do like it and I don't like it um, in that... Okay, the short answer... It's too long. And it's too long because it kind of strays into other places or it lingers too much on emotion and the horses and the flowers and the night. Um, because, Because it's so long, you have a lot that you can like and you can't like because of who you are and what what you're where you're at in your love journey. So um yeah, I don't like that it's not just as you know um it's not concentrated. It's it wanders, it's too long. I I would have preferred it if it had just concentrated on Adonis and Venus and nothing else. Just zero in on that shit. And when it comes to what I didn't like, it has to be the answer. I did not... Just how much it is. It is... Just a lot... Again, so yes, as we suggested, perhaps, I would like this more if it was packaged as two stanzas every day coming as a push notification on your phone. Perhaps that is the modern way that this poem is meant to be viewed. They, they need to serialise this like a Dickens novel, hey? <laughs> and when it comes to what we did like, what is something that unambiguously did like, Greg? It's funny that that connects directly with what I most liked about this play, uh, this poem, is that if you took any random stanza, odds are it is a 
beautiful, amazing stanza that most English speakers would never have the chance to write as well. That if you took any stanza, it has something incredible about it and something amazing in either the language or the image it produces, um, the cleverness of the rhymes. There's something to be enjoyed in any one stanza. And so, yeah, yeah, it would work amazing as a series of Instagram posts because there wouldn't be a day where you go, oh, well, that was a boring one. Was he off sick that week? It's like the that study that they did a while ago about what do people like, Pepsi or Coke? And they found that if you gave them a sip of each, people liked Pepsi. But if you gave them a glass, people liked Coke because the Pepsi was just a bit too much as a full glass. (laughs) And I do wonder if this podcast becomes better, we could make our own bot just to send you this thing via email once a day, two (laughs) stanzas once a day. Just type in your email address here and we'll talk to you. Sophie, what is it you like about this poem? I mean, yeah, I... uh... It kind of goes back to what I didn't like because it was both. Because it's so long, there are places that you can like. It's, I can imagine like in the, in the olden days when first constantly being republished when Shakespeare was still alive and a little bit after he had died, um, that you would have maybe one literate person in your family and, um, and you'd take turns reading it, and you're like, oh, that part. It's like, oh, that part. So just having a potential communal experience of just reading it around the firelight and going, oh, Shakespeare, how dare you? Oh, you saucy boy. And having a little bit of fun in that, with that, when you're in 1600s dealing with plague, you're quarantined, you can't go outside. You might as well read, read a long poem and just do this kind of shit, but with your girlfriends. So I like the head canon that I have brought up, thought about while reading this poem rather than the actual poem itself, I guess. <laughs> lovely, lovely. <laughs> I, I, I hate this poem, but I love what I've turned it into in my head. Yes. <laughs> For me, what I did like about it, I do like a boy who will push away any woman who tries to get on him. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Next time. Well, any final thoughts? No. I am desperately hoping that the next uh, poem we read is not too tiresome. Uh, Well, we're doing Hero and Leander, so I'm sorry. Oh no! In that co- in that context, we can do a flip of a coin. Shall we do Hero and Leander, or shall we do Book One of the Fairy Queen? Ooh, I, I have to warn that. you that Book One of the Fairy Queen is a quite a bit longer than Hero and Leander. It's about a knight. It's what well, it's you know it's a it's a poem set in fairyland. Where there's an it's an allegorical poem, one of, where a knight and his lady go and fight monsters, and these monsters are they are named. This is the monster called Pride. This is the snake called Deception, and the knight called Faithful. 
needs to kill them all. It's that kind of thing. That's very much Pilgrim's Progress. Well, I mean, I, I'd like that, but only because I've never read it. So let us. Okay, so shall we do the Fairy Queen next time? It sounds yeah, let's great. See how it goes. Okay, I will admit that the, what my strategy for this uh, po- podcast was to do. Let's do one. Po- let's do one Shakespeare work, and let's do a parallel work. I will admit that if a parallel work would be too torturous to do, we're just going to do something vaguely related to the Shakespeare thing we did before. And that was Venus and Adonis by Shakespeare. Next time, we will be reading book one of The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. Thank you for listening to this episode, episode four, Venus and Adonis. The works referenced in this episode were the Oxford Shakespeare, the complete sonnets and poems, the life of the author, William Shakespeare by Anna Beer, and Ovid's Metamorphoses, translated by Charles Martin. Thank you for listening.